Well, good evening. As we get ready now for our evening Bible study here in the book of Revelation, I invite you please turn to Revelation chapter 17. We will be finishing the chapter tonight. Revelation chapter 17, starting in verse 7, we will read to the end of the chapter. But the angel said to me, Why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery or the hidden truth of the woman and the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth, and is of the seven, and is going to perdition. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them. For he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings, and those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. Then he said to me, The waters which you saw... Where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. For God has put into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. So last time, which would have been about a month ago, we began what we see here in Revelation as the fifth of seven cycles, as we looked at verses 1 through 6 of chapter 17. This cycle begins in chapter 17, verse 1, and goes all the way through chapter 19, verse 10, and it focuses on Babylon, as each of the cycles seem to have a particular perspective, a particular focus on what is going on in the book of Revelation. They each look at the same general period of time. Again, this time that we're calling the church age between the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ and his return at the end of the age. Each of these seven cycles looks at that period of time from different perspectives, from different focuses. And this one focuses on Babylon. Now, we've mentioned it before, but by way of reminder, Babylon refers not to the literal city or kingdom of Babylon. In Revelation, Babylon stands as a symbol of everything that is anti-God in the world. And in verses 1 through 6, Babylon here is seen as a harlot, as a prostitute dressed in scarlet and purple, sitting atop a great scarlet beast. And so John is summoned by one of the bowl-wielding angels, one of the angels that had the seven bowls with the seven last plagues of God, and he is summoned by one of these angels and told that he will be shown 
the judgment of the great harlot. Now this harlot does what harlots do, and she commits fornication with the kings of the earth and the inhabitants of the earth. This harlot makes them drunk with the wine of her fornication. And all of this imagery of harlots and wine and, and fornication is meant to show us how the lure of the world seduces kings and people. And the notion of fornication, of course, is itself a symbol of idolatry. Fornication and, and sexual immorality are often symbols in the Bible that depict the idea of idolatry or spiritual adultery. So then John is taken by this angel into the wilderness and he sees a woman dressed in purple and scarlet sitting atop a scarlet beast that has seven heads and ten horns. And of course, the idea of the seven heads and ten horns, we've seen this before throughout the book of Revelation. Chapter 12, the dragon has seven heads and ten horns. Chapter 13, the beast has seven heads and ten horns. And this beast here in chapter 17 is the same beast has seven heads and ten horns, which signify the fact that this beast draws its power, draws its authority, draws its influence from Satan. So this idea of a harlot sitting on top of the beast is meant to invoke the idea of the marriage, if you will, of evil, anti-God, anti-Christian, anti-Bible culture with evil, anti-God, anti-Christian, anti-Bible world government. The image of this great beast is also meant to draw our attention back to earlier visions in Revelations chapter 12 and 13, in which the seven heads and the ten horns, again, as I said, indicate the satanic power behind world culture and the state. As always, when we see such visions, we need to understand, if you will, we need to understand how John and his readers would have understood it before we seek to understand it for ourselves and for our time. So as we head into our passage this evening, Revelation chapter 17, verses 7 through 18, tonight we're going to finish chapter 17, in which now... After showing him the great harlot, this angel now will explain the vision of the great harlot to John. So in this chapter, we're going to see the angel explain to John. In general, he's going to explain the beast in verses 7 and 8. Then he's going to look at particular parts of the beast. He's going to look at the seven heads in verses 9 through 11. And the ten horns in verses 12 through 14. And then finally... In verses 15 through 18, he's going to focus on the woman. But really, the focus on the woman is not so much on the woman, but on her judgment. Again, if you remember from 17 verse 1, the angel says to John, Come and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot. So first, looking at verses 7 and 8, the beast, after seeing the vision of the great harlot... Babylon, writing on the scarlet beast, John, we are told in verse 6, marvels. Now this is, when we see the word marvel here, he, it's not like he's amazed in a good way. This is, this is sort of astonishment. This is sort of 
the, the vision takes his breath away in a very negative way. It is a gruesome uh, vision of this woman on a beast getting drunk on the blood of the martyrs of Jesus Christ. So he marvels. He is astonished at this vision. But then the angel who showed him the vision then turns to John and says in verses 7 and 8, the angel says to me, Why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. So John, why do you marvel? Don't marvel. He's marveling. John is marveling because he sees this great image of the harlot and he's, as he, I'm sure he is in every other vision that he's seen throughout the book of Revelation, he is taken aback. What does this mean? What does this symbolize? And the angel says, do not marvel, John. Do not be astonished. I will explain this vision to you. Now, it's not often in the book of Revelation that we see John receive a vision and that he is told the mystery of that vision. It does happen, but it's not very often. If you recall, way, 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 way back to Revelation chapter 1, when, G, when John gets the vision of the exalted Jesus, how this vision of Jesus is so unlike every other vision we see of Jesus in the Bible, where Jesus is a nondescript human being, Jesus meek and mild. In this vision in John chapter 1, John, or Revelation chapter 1, John gets a vision of the exalted Christ, of the glorified Christ, of the Christ who is at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And it's a vision of glorious splendor in which Jesus has the sword that comes out of his mouth. He's got the eyes of, of the flames of fire that, that pierce and see to the, to, the, to the greatest detail. He's got the feet of burnished bronze and the white hair and all this stuff. But if you remember at the end of that, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, we see Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the great Lamb, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus walking amongst seven lampstands, holding seven stars in his hand. And then Jesus turns to John and says, I will explain to you the mystery or the meaning of the seven stars and the seven lampstands. So here's a vision that John gets of Jesus walking amongst the lampstands with seven stars. And I'm sure he, just like now, marveled. What does this mean? What, what is the meaning of this vision? How am I to interpret this? And Jesus says, don't worry, John. I'll tell you. And of course, we know that the lampstands are the churches and the stars are the servants or the messengers of those churches. Again, in chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, verse 14, in which John gets initially, in the first half of that chapter, right, he gets the vision of the, of the church militant lined up for battle in a battle array. The 12 tribes of 12,000 each shows the church militant, the church lined up. It's a census, like you see in the book of Numbers, a census of the... And here... Israel lined up for war. It's the church. It is the church militant. But then at the end of that vision, he goes into the second half of chapter 7, 
where you see the church triumphant. This great multitude standing on a sea of glass before the throne. And John wonders, and one of the 24 angels, or one of the, sorry, one of the 24 elders turns to John and says, do you know who these are? And John, of course, says, no, sir, I do not know who these are. I do not know who these are. And the elder says, don't worry, I'll explain it to you. And he tells him that these are those who come out of the great tribulation. Their, wo- their robes have been washed clean and they are now made white. And they are praising God and the Lamb. And now, of course, we see here in chapter 17, one of the bowl angels here will explain this vision that John receives of the great harlot on top of the great scarlet beast. Now, the problem is, of course, whenever you see these explanations to visions, sometimes the explanations raise more questions than they answer. But here the angel begins first with the beast. And in fact, most of this passage goes on to explaining the beast. And the angel says that the beast was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. Now, the first thing to note about this image of the beast is when you see that language, the beast was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit. Does that language strike you as similar to something else? Well, it ought to because oftentimes in the book of Revelation, how is God described? He is described as the one who was and who is and who is to come. So in a sense, the first thing you see is that this beast is sort of a poor imitation of God. Whereas God is the one who was, who is, and is to come, this beast was and is not and will ascend out of the pit and then go to destruction or go to perdition. Another thing, the second thing to note is we need to remember what the beast represents. What does the beast represent? Well, the beast is symbolic of evil. It is symbolic of the evil, satanic kingdoms of this world. Uh, We saw this in Daniel chapter 7. And we're going to be making a lot of references between, again, between Revelation and Daniel, particularly Daniel chapter 7. And in that vision, if you recall, if you were here with us during our study through the book of Daniel, when we looked at Daniel chapter 7, uh, Daniel gets these visions. And the first vision that he receives is of these four beasts rising out of the sea. One looks like a lion. The other one looks like a bear. The third one looks like a Um, a leopard and then of course the fourth one is a hideous beast with you guessed it seven heads and ten horns now when we went through that chapter right we talked about this everybody wants to describe what does the the four kingdoms mean who are these kingdoms to identify them unfortunately we realize that the angel that explains to daniel that vision doesn't give him the answer. He says the four beasts are four kingdoms. And here, the beast, of course, is representative of evil kingdoms, evil satanic world governments, kingdoms or governments powered and influenced by Satan and his minions. Again, if you remember from Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, 
9, when Daniel prays and he waits three weeks for the answer uh, from, to, uh, to his prayer, and an angel comes to him and says, I was delayed. He was delayed. He found out he was delayed by an entity called the Prince of Persia, the Prince of the Kingdom of Persia. And when we, when we looked at that passage, we talked about how that is not an earthly prince. It is not an earthly king. It is, it is the satanic power behind Persia. Because what earthly king can stand up against an angel? None. Zero. Zip. Nada. No kings can stand up against an angel. But can withstand an angel. So that angel was withstood by the prince of Persia until Michael, the great angel of God's people, came and sort of uh, rescued him and liberated him. But anyway, moving along here. Now, the idea behind this description of the beast is that world, evil world empires will rise and fall. So when John is told by the angel that the beast was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition, this is the idea that evil world empires will rise and fall. But they are all representative of the beast. Again, that beast in chapter 13 of the book of Revelation has features and similarities to all four beasts from Daniel 7. So it is sort of an amalgam. It is a composite. It is a, a, a kind of a combination of all of those beasts. It represents all of them. So currently, from John's perspective, as he writes at the end of the first century, the beasts, of course, would be manifested in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, which... Of course, it was beastly, right? Nero was a very wicked emperor. Nero persecuted the church. Many Romans persecuted the church. Uh, the church for the first 300 years of its existence in history was persecuted off and on at the behest of the Roman Empire, the beast. But of course, before Rome was the manifestation of the beast, we had the kingdom of Greece. And before that, the kingdom of Persia. And before that, the kingdom of Babylon, and then Assyria, Egypt. The beast is always with us. The beast is present. Now, more importantly, of course, we see here there will come a government, a kingdom, that will arise out of the bottomless pit. So the beast was and is not. So kingdoms rise and fall. But there will come one out of the bottomless pit meaning there will come a manifestation of the beast. It's probably its most terrifying manifestation right before the end that will then go to perdition. This will be that final antichrist power that will make war with the saints at the end of the age. Keep your finger in Revelation 17, if you will, and we'll go back and look at a couple of verses um, in Revelation Notably, Revelation chapter 11, verse 7. Revelation verse 7, this is in the discussion of the two witnesses which represent the church. The church uh, is that, that testimony that requires the evidence of two or three witnesses. So you have two witnesses here who are given the authority to, to prophesy. And they are given the authority to prophesy for 42 months. But at the end of that time, when they finish their testimony in Revelation 11, verse 7, the beast 
which hasn't been introduced yet. This is the first mention of the beast in Revelation, but he'll be further introduced in chapter 13. The beast will ascend, or the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, the two witnesses, the church, will overcome them and kill them. So this beast, the final antichrist world power will come. When it says descend out of the bottomless pit, means it is, it is influenced and powered by Satan himself. It is influenced and powered and empowered and influenced by all of the, the, the power of, of Satan and the satanic world uh, powers and, and demonic forces. And it will make war against the two witnesses and overcome them. We see similar imagery in chapter 13. We see the beast described in a little more detail in verse 7 of that chapter. And it was granted to him, that is the beast, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. Again, this, this beast, which represents evil, anti-God, anti-Christian world governments, kingdoms. Like I said, they've been all with us throughout all of this age. But at the end of the age, near the end of the age, will come a final manifestation that it'll, it'll, it'll be as if it comes out of the pit of hell itself. And then the angel tells John that those who dwell on the earth, that is, the wicked, the unbelievers, they will marvel when they see this beast, the one that was and is and will go to perdition. They will marvel. Why will they marvel? Because that's what they do. That's what the wicked do. They have taken the mark of the beast. They worship the beast they have been instructed by the false prophet, the beast of the earth, to worship the beast that comes out. The angel tells John, do not marvel about this, but the wicked will marvel. And of course, to confirm that these are the wicked, we see that the angel tells him, these are those, those who dwell on the earth are those who are written in the book of life, right? They are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Again, just a, a little side note on this, as we've seen this before. Uh, the Bible, again, it's quite clear that there are those whose names are written in the book of life and there are those who aren't. And you don't get to write your name in the book of life. Your name is in the book of life. God has done that from before the foundation. So if you are a believer in Christ, if you are a faithful believer in Christ, Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, rely on Him alone for your salvation, for your salvation, it gives the evidence that you are indeed one of those whose names was written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Those who marvel at the beast, when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is, those are, those, those are the people whom, whose names are not written in the book of life. So those in this world who love the state and think government can cure all ills and right all wrongs, they effectively make an idol out of the state and worship the beast. We see this all around in our world and have, it has been manifested in the world. 
those, those ancient governments from the time that the New Testament was written were all about emperor worship and worshiping of kings. I mean, even going back to the Old Testament, pharaohs of old were, were considered deities that needed to be worshipped and revered. Kingdoms have always thought that their kings were sort of demigods at the very least, if not then just chosen by gods or God. And, and people even today, they are willing to give up their freedoms and liberties in order to have security from the state. Cure all their ills, right all the wrongs, to bring justice. on world governments okay well let's move on now to verses 9 and 11 as we see the angel talk about the seven heads he moves away from the beast in general to talk about some of its features look at verses 9 through 11 here is the mind which has wisdom the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits there are also seven kings, five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue for a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth, and is of the seven, and is going to perdition. FYI, when you see something repeated like that, oftentimes we've seen that phrase already, was and is and is not repeated two or three times and goes to perdition has also now been repeated. In other words, this is to signify to us that all of this evil wickedness that we see in the world manifesting itself, the world governments and kingdoms of this world are all destined for judgment. Everything that is, sets itself against God, against his Christ, against his people, the church, are destined for judgment. They Perdition. And that is one of the great truths of the book of Revelation. One of the great truths that this book is so uh, desirous to teach us is that God is in control. He is in control and sovereign control over kings and nations, and that He will enact judgment on the wicked and He will vindicate and preserve His people. That is one of the great truths of this book. But now this angel tells John, here is the mind which has wisdom. In other words, you really need discernment. You need to put on your thinking caps, people, because what you're about to hear, you need wisdom. If you remember back when chapter 13, verse 18, when we looked at the beast from the earth, the false prophet, and at the end of that chapter... Uh, we again see you need the mind of wisdom in order to understand the number of the beast and how we looked at that and saw how you've got the number of the beast. You've got all of the interpretations of the number of the beast. Which There are so many interpretations. There are probably as many interpretations of the number of the beast as there are people who hold to those interpretations. And if that tells you anything, it should tell you this, that the number of the beast is probably not any of those things. Um, but it takes wisdom because people have, have run wild with trying to interpret the number of the beast. And the same thing here as this angel tells John about the seven heads of the beast. 
There are a lot of interpretations of the number of the beast. There are a lot of interpretations of the seven heads of the beast. This calls for wisdom. Now, again, the first thing to take note of is that the seven heads of the beast here has two interpretations. Verse 9 says the seven heads are seven mountains. And verse 10 says that there are also seven kings. The angel tells John in verse 9 that the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now, it's really not hard to see this as describing Rome. Again, the woman, as we saw last time, is described as Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. And Babylon in the New Testament was often a way of describing Rome. Peter, in his second epistle, signs off as Peter, saying greetings from those who are in Babylon. And it is often believed that Peter wrote that epistle while in Rome. And Rome is also a city that sits atop seven mountains or seven hills. So I, again, I really think you have to work hard not to see this image as Rome. In other words, the seven heads upon which the harlot sits are seven mountains upon which Rome sits, a manifestation of the beast, a manifestation of the harlot as well. Rome, that world culture that sought to uh, lure and entice the people of God away from faithfulness. Now, if you hold to a preterist view, if you remember from our very first lesson when we looked at the, um, the various ways or interpretive grids, I the book of Revelation has been understood. One of those is the preterist. You have the preterist view, you have the futurist view, you have the historicist view, and you have the idealist view. The preterist view of Revelation holds to the view, it's the interpretation that says most, if not all, of the prophecies and visions of the book of Revelation were fulfilled in the past. That's what preterist means, in the past. Now, if you hold to a full preterist view regarding Revelation, that would be heresy. That would be a heretical view because it also says that the return of Christ was completely fulfilled before 70 AD and the destruction of the Now, a partial preterist view, and I think you may recall this one as well, a partial preterist view holds that most of the prophecies and visions were fulfilled in AD 70 with the, with the exception at the very least of the return, the final return of Christ. There might be some other things too. But if you hold to a preterist view of Revelation and also you hold to an early date of writing of the book of Revelation, which some do. It's not the majority opinion, but there, are, uh, there is a, uh, a pretty sizable minority of people who believe that Revelation was also written before 70 AD. Then this idea that the seven heads represents Rome works very well for your position. Because, again, the preterist view holds that most of Revelation was fulfilled in 70 AD with the fall of Jerusalem. Also in the, pre in the preterist view, the beast is Rome. The fourth and final beast from Daniel's vision in chapter 7. So if you hold to a preterist view and an early date of writing, this, this works very well for you, as I said. But just the very fact that Rome is 
doesn't prove prejudice to the exclusion. And believe the seven heads represent Rome, and that the beast, at least in some way, is manifested in Rome. Because most and interpret Revelation. But it doesn't, it doesn't exclude their views just because it fits well into the preterist view. Again, many times we've stated Rome is a manifestation of the beast. And it would be the case even if John wrote, if you hold to our view of the date of writing sometime between the time, uh, the years 85 and 90 AD, when John wrote, what was the power? empire that was in power then. It was still Rome. It was still Rome. But here is where the wisdom is needed. Look at verse 10. They are, there are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue for a short time. So the seven heads are seven woman sits, Rome, okay, no problem with that, but also seven kings, and we're told five fallen, one is, and the other is not yet come. Now, the temptation, of course, is to think that if the beast is Rome, then the heads must refer to the emperors of Rome. And again, if you are a partial preterist, take five five heads that are the one that is and the one that is yet to come oftentimes the one again preterism and early date of right tend to go hand in hand now this sounds intriguing except for fact and that is this there is no consistent on who the emperors are. There have been several lists proffered over the years of people interpreting Revelation as to who these heads refer to. And oftentimes these lists are massaged to fit a particular interpretation. I'd like to suggest an alternative. Instead of trying to identify the seven with seven Roman emperors, how about this? Maybe they're not so much particular, but symbolic of past, present, and kingdoms. Again, tying back to Daniel 7. Sorry, I keep referring back to Daniel while we're studying the book of Revelation. But again, it goes to show you how linked these two books really are. And if you recall, again, how those four beasts we're rising up out of the sea in Daniel chapter 7. When we looked at that passage back in January, we noted there are many who want to identify the four beasts. And the, the most typical uh, illustration, or I should say uh, the most typical interpretation of the four beasts is the lion represents Babylon, the bear represents the Medo-Persian Empire, the leopard represents Greece, and the fourth beast, the hideous beast, is Rome. But when the vision, when the angel gives the interpretation of the vision to Daniel, he doesn't tell him who they are. He just says, Daniel, the four beasts that you saw rising up 
out of the sea are four kingdoms. Four kings or kingdoms. He did not specify who or whom they were. I always find it interesting and intriguing when the Bible tells us something and we seek then to sort of peek behind the curtain, right? Okay, let me, let me, how many people here, I'm sure everyone here has seen The Wizard of Oz, right? And everyone wants to peek behind the curtain and take a look at the wizard. Everyone wants to see, you know, we hear this mystery. Our minds are, are, are not in tune to sort of accept this half explanations. We need to know. We want to know. So we're like, okay, who, are these, who are these four kingdoms? And we say, okay, this is Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Kind of sounds like a little Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Oh my. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Again, the angel doesn't say that. And the fact that the angel doesn't say that indicates to me that it's not irrelevant. It's not relevant. In fact, four, if you think about the number four in, in symbolically, it, it represents the entirety of the world, right? The four corners of the world, the four winds. So these are kingdoms from all over the world. And they will come, and they, they will be there. They, one will rise, and then it will fall, then another one will take its place. Again, the beast that was, the beast that is, or is not, and will rise out of the pit and go to perdition. So I would like to take the same approach here. Because we could speculate all the live long day as to who the seven kings are. But at the end of the day, if I give you who I think they are, guess what? It is just speculation. Someone else tells you the kings are this. Guess what? It is just speculation. Because unless it is in black and white in my Bible, it is just speculation. Now it may be good. It could also be a very bad So I see no reason or need to, to go beyond what Scripture says here. So the idea of the seven heads, I suggest, is to say this. The beast is in control. The beast has been in control, is currently in control, and will be in control for a little while longer. In other words, by showing the beast with seven heads suggests that the beast's dominion, that number seven meaning complete, fullness, the beast's dominion over fallen humanity is total. It is comprehensive. But guess what? It is nearing its end. At the time of writing, John and his contemporaries are in the sixth, if you will, head or kingdom. The last one will come and will continue for a short time. Think about what happens in Revelation chapter 12. Right? In Revelation chapter 12, when we get the vision of the woman and the child, and we find out in verse 7 of chapter 12 that war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not know, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. Verse 9, so the dragon was cast out. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And then 
We go on in verse 10, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath. Why does the devil have great wrath? Because he knows his time is short. His time is short. And that's what we see in this vision too. Seven heads. Five are gone. One is and one is yet to come. That means the time of the beast is short. The time is short. Evil will not reign forever. And the angel says that the beast himself is an eighth kingdom that is like the seven. That is the kingdom of Antichrist. This last one that comes out of the bottomless pit. He marks the end of the age and it will be the one that goes into destruction. It will be the one that is there when Christ returns in victory at the end of the age. So that is how I believe I think we should interpret the seven heads. Sure, they are kings and kingdoms, but they are representative of the fact that the beast has always been in power. And he has control over fallen humanity. But his time is short because five of its seven heads have been used up in a sense. Think of a hydra, right? The old uh, myth of the hydra, right? Hercules, you know, the, the course of the way the story goes, when you off one head of a hydra, two more come in its place. Well, in this case, this is a seven-headed uh, serpent. And five of its heads have been dealt with. You're currently dealing with the, the, the sixth one, and there's one left to go. In other words, his time is short. It is almost at an end. Evil will not reign forever. Well, now, moving on, the angel goes on now to describe the ten horns in verses 12 through 14. Look, please, at first at verse 12. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. Yeah. As with the angel's previous description of the um, seven heads, there are a lot of people who wish to identify these ten kings. <laughs> you know, what is the, well, yeah, they wish to identify the ten kings. Now, our dispensational brothers and sisters, love them to death, see these ten kings, and uh, let me put it this way, I came out of, out of dispensationalism, and the most common interpretation I've heard of the ten kings is that the ten kings represent a sort of a confederation of ten rulers under the Antichrist. And the idea here, is, in other words, it will be a reconstituted Roman Empire. And where you get that really is going back to Daniel, my favorite other book to talk about when I'm talking about Revelation. When you get to Daniel, and if you remember in Daniel 2, right, Nebuchadnezzar has the vision of the, the great statue. And uh, he's perplexed, and he calls Daniel, who interprets the vision for him, and he tells him that you, O king, are the head of gold, and uh, there will come a kingdom after you that's the chest in, uh, of bronze, the torso, or I mean, sorry, the torso of silver, 
and then the hips of bronze, and then the legs of iron, and then finally you get down to the feet and the ten toes, iron partially mixed with clay. So this idea of the ten kings is derived from this idea of the ten toes, a confederate sort of uh, reconstituted Roman Empire because partly iron, uh, and you've got the ten toes. So the most common dispensational interpretation of the ten horns is that they are ten kings or ten governors or ten rulers in a reconstituted Roman Empire. Now, you can imagine in 1993 when the European Union was formed, right? This sent the prophecy geeks into a state of ecstasy. Aha! The Roman Empire has been reconstituted. We are in the end times. We are so close. Problem is now, if you look at the EU, has way more than 10 kings. And they're adding more. Another problem with interpreting the ten horns as a reconstituted Roman Empire is the number ten, like the number seven, has symbolic significance. So I take this woodenly literal approach, in my opinion, I think does damage to the book of Revelation. You see, Revelation is not a code book. It is not a cipher to the future. You know, if you think about World War II, you know, you see these World War II shows and stuff, you know, where you capture a message from the enemy side, and if you've broken the code, then you just take the message and you compare it to the cipher, and you can crack the, the code, and and all so on and so forth. And they look at God's word like that, particularly the book of Revelation. They say, you know, this is a cipher for the future. This is how we interpret. You know, we just need to crack the code. No, no. It is God's way of telling us that he is in control even when it doesn't appear that he is. And Revelation also shows us that Christ is coming and will bring judgment on the wicked and vindicate his people. So then what do the ten kings mean? Well, first of all, let me say this. I don't think our dispensational friends are too far off the mark on this one. Again, note the clues in verse 12. These ten kings have received no kingdom as yet. So at least from John's perspective, these ten kings are from his future. They have received no power yet. They've received no kingdom yet. They've received no authority yet. And when they do receive authority, when they do receive authority, they receive authority uh, for one hour as kings with the beast. What does an hour suggest? A very short period of time. Right? When you have periods of time that are in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, I should say, you have, you know, that, of course, the one that we've seen time and time again, right? Times, time, half a time. 1,260 days, 42 months, all talking about the same three and a half year period, which is representative of the church age. We've seen 10 days, three days, one day, an hour, all short periods of time. When we get to Revelation 20, we're going to see a thousand years. That's a long period of time. So the fact that they receive authority for one hour suggests a very brief period of time and then they rule with the beast now if you look at verses 13 and 14 we also see this these the ten kings are of one mind and they will give their power and authority to the beast 
These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for He is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with Him are called, chosen, and faithful. So these ten kings who have received no kingdom as of yet, when they receive authority, will be for a short period of time. They will rule with the beast. They will give their authority to the beast. And then they will go to war with the Lamb. This, to me, indicates that this is something that will happen at the end of the age. We saw this before. Revelation chapter 16, verse 14. In the sixth bowl judgment and the great battle of Armageddon. You're thinking, oh no, pastor, please don't, don't, don't go through Armageddon again. Don't worry, I'm not. The great battle of Armageddon in which all the kings of the earth gather for battle. And needless to say, this is a battle that is never in doubt. We also see that we will see this again in Revelation chapter 19, verse 19, in which the kings of the earth are gathered together to battle against the one who sits on the white horse. And here, this final battle is being told from a different perspective again in Revelation 17, 12 through 14. As with the other two visions, the kings of the earth are drawn together. They make war with the Lamb. And then in verse 14, we see the final battle in this very succinct statement. And the Lamb will overcome them. So these ten horns are ten kings of complete valley to the beast and rule with them for a very brief time. They will gather for war and be easily defeated by the Lamb. Now finally, let us look at verses 15 through 18 as we see the woman. Now again, as I said earlier, these next verses don't so much describe the woman, which we did see last time in verses 1 through 6. There's a, it describes the woman in greater detail, but here they describe her demise. John was told again back in verse 1 to come and see the judgment of the harlot, and that's what we see now as we look at verses 15 through 17. Then he said to me, The waters which you saw, where the harlot sits, are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind, and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. So the angel first describes the waters upon which the harlot sits. These waters, as we've seen earlier in other lessons, is symbolic of the nations. The vastness and the chaos that they bring, the nations. And the fact that the harlot sits on top or above or upon the water suggests that the harlot holds sway over the nations. The harlot, with her... With her uh, lures and her wiles and her seductions has sway over the waters, over the nations, over the peoples of the world. And then we see the ten horns again, but now we see them again of one mind, whereas before they were of one mind giving their authority to the beast, now they are of one mind in hating the harlot. The kings of the earth begin to destroy the harlot. They defile her. They burn her. Now what in the world is going on here? What in the world is going on here? Well, let me put it to you this way. Evil eats their own. Right? 
if there's one thing you've, that we've seen time and time again in the scriptures is that the wicked end up eating their own. They fall into their own trap. They're hoisted on their own petard. The boulder that they roll up the hill rolls back down upon them. Evil eats their own. You think back when Jesus is performing miracles and he's performing signs and miracles and the Pharisees look at Jesus and they say, he casts out demons by the power of Beelzebub. In other words, what we're seeing on display here is not the power of God, it is the power of the devil. And Jesus says to them, you do realize <laughs> that a house divided cannot stand. A house divided against itself cannot stand. And that's what we see here. Consider all of the world empires from the past. They, they all fall, right? The kingdom was, the, the beast was and is not. They all fall. And they all fall typically because of internal rot. Roman Empire, perfect example. At the height of its power, nothing could touch it. It was the most powerful empire in the world. It had a, an expansive world empire covering most of Europe, northern Africa, and, and large swaths of the Middle East. Massive empire. And a massive army, a well-trained army, highly uh, technical army with, with great technological advancements and great tactics were able to hold that empire for hundreds of years. But be, again, because Rome, when Rome fell, it wasn't because the barbarians beat them. When Rome fell, it's because Rome was rotting from within, and by the time the barbarians attacked, they were a shell of themselves. Empires fall from within. They, they eat their own. They're, they're parasites that eat on their own flesh. And again, this is because God puts this in their hearts. God entices the kings of the world to turn on the harlot. And this, again, is also a form of judgment to fulfill His purpose. That's what we see. Does it surprise you that God does this? It shouldn't surprise you. God, again, has sovereign control over nations and kings and executes judgment on them for their sin. God entices the kings to destroy the harlot and then entices them to join up with the beast in his ill-fated campaign against the Lamb. Again, why would the kings of the earth think that they have a, a chance against the Lamb? Psalm 2, right? The nations rage! And God sits on His throne and trembles? <laughs> he sits on His throne and chews His fingernails? No, He laughs in derision at them. And again, this enticement of the world's kings to attack the Lamb is a judgment on them as we see until, until the words of God are fulfilled. Amen? The words of God are fulfilled when the beast and his kings are defeated by the Lamb. And then finally, in verse 18, the angel describes the woman very succinctly. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. The woman is that great city, Babylon, which has been manifest in every kingdom and empire that has defied the living God. We know that the, the, the woman is Babylon because that's what we saw in verses 1 through 6. She is Babylon, the great harlot, that great city 
that stands against God and his people. And of course, again, in John's day, Babylon is Rome, but Babylon is with us even today. Babylon is with us even today. There, there's always, just as there's always a manifestation of the beast in every age, in every period of time, there's also a manifestation of Babylon in every period of time. But Babylon will be judged. Babylon will be judged. And that will be the focus of our study, Lord willing, in two weeks when we start looking at Revelation 18. Probably uh, consider the first, 18, uh, first eight verses. The fall of Babylon the Great.